Hey, you. I'm Kim. And I'm Tara. Welcome to Unapologetically You. Do we have a story for you today, guys? Lauren's going to tell us about a medical diagnosis that she received as a 15-year-old girl. And you guys, you're not even going to believe it. The way she saw her life was forever altered after this. The overwhelming emotions of heartache after heartache that she had to work through ultimately led her to her own miracles. Stay tuned for Lauren's story. Welcome, Lauren. We're so excited to have you share what seems to be a somewhat uncommon story with us today. Well, hey, guys. Hey, Gail Pals. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Lauren, why don't you give us a little glimpse of what your life looks like right now? I have a four-year-old little boy and a one-year-old little girl, and we have a grain and a small beef farm, and that's kind of what we love to do. We are people of people of the land, you could say. Okay, so for you, Lauren, it was quite the journey of getting to this point in your life. While lots of people struggle to have children, and while that struggle can be surrounded with quite a swirl of overwhelming emotions, your struggle is a bit different than anyone that we know. Um, your story of defying the odds and creating this life that you have now is truly remarkable. So how did you begin this journey of realizing naturally having children wasn't an option? It was kind of interesting. I was like 15 years old and I was a well-developed 15 year old. <laughs> and I was like, mom, there's something wrong. I haven't gotten my my cycle. And I like begged her. I was like, we have to go to the doctor. And we lived at the time. It was a really small town. And I was like, we have to go to the doctor. And I was like, but my child person who delivered me and was my doctor throughout all of my life until this point was a male and a friend's dad. Yeah. Right. You can't go in there. Dr. Feldman, guess what? Check me out. Right. (laughs) Like examine the parts down there. (laughs) So it was just real awkward. And so I begged my mom, I'm like, can we please go see the other doctor in the office? And so we did, we took her or I went in there I remember just like, got to put your feet up on the stirrups and remember those, like the disgusting socks that are on there. And all I could think about was like, how many feet have been on these socks at 15? But it was like, I put my feet up in the stirrups. And I mean, two seconds later, she's like, yeah, something's wrong here. And my mom's like, what do you mean something's wrong here? And she's like, I can't do a pap smear. I can't put the speculum in there. Like she has a pin size hole vagina. Like 15 year old girl sitting there. I guess like, what was your response? Because I'd be like, what? What do you mean? I I like, I was in shock. And the doctor was just like, clearly didn't know what to say. Besides like something is wrong. Uh, here's our pedi- here's my pediatrician recommendation at Children's. And it was shocking for my parents, shocking for me. My sister was with us as well. I'm sure she was, and she's like, so if I was 15, she was 18. And it's just like, whoa, like, what do we do now? And so like very few or very little time in between the time that the doctor at in Sycamore saw me we were at Children's Memorial with my parents and my sister. And my, it's kind of funny. My sister came and my brother, poor kid. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm 15. He's 13. So he was probably like, what the? <laughs> the doctor puts my feet up in the stirrups again. And she, Dr. Mears was her name. And she was just the quirkiest, most wonderful lady that could have ever Good. like happened upon this situation. Aww. And she was like, 
Oh man, she was just like, well, here's what's going to go on. We are going to be testing you to see if you're intersex. We are going to be check checking if you have this MRKH and we're going to be see you know, like just like running all these tests. But she's like, most likely you are going to be somebody who has MRKH, which is what it ended up being. So MRKH is Meyer-Rokitansky-Custer-Hauser syndrome. Well, that's the name. Yeah, that's why we call it MRK. Right. But what is it? Well, it's just like essentially the cells stop developing at a certain point in my reproductive system. And so and that's exactly what it is, where there's two types. There's type one, type two. Type one is a little less severe. Type two is what I have, and it's more severe. So I have one kidney. I, ha I do have two ovaries, but absence of uterus, no cervix, no vaginal opening. And so it was like very obvious to Dr. Mears when she was looking that that was where this was going to be leading because people who are intersex, it looks a little bit different. Maybe there is a penis, maybe there is, there is a vagina, like it tends to be like a dual look. But so they had to like test me or, you know, like ultrasounds, MRIs. They wanted to find out if I had ovaries because that's another thing that it can be is like maybe one ovary developed and the other one mm -hmm. didn't but I had two. So I was pretty lucky in that way. So all this is going on when you're 16 years old. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Like, do you realize like what a big thing this is? Or because you're 16? Are you kind of like, I mean, all right. Right. I'm just like, Oh, I'll just adapt. Right? Like, Oh, it'll be fine. Yeah. This is not the big of a deal. And then you know, like at this point, the vaginal opening is the like, scariest part for me, mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm 16. Like, sex, you know, like life after this, I had no interest in boys. I don't know. I had like a few boyfriends here or there, but it was more like, oh, hey. Sure. Yeah. See, see a math class. But it was not something that was ever really on my mind at this point until this. And it was just like, oh my gosh. So Dr. Mears, who again, was just kind of like this, like salt of the earth kind of lady. And she was like, you have two options. You're, you can use dilators or you can have this massive surgery. Mm. And it, it would have taken pieces of bowel and created a vagina. And so it smells. It's extreme, like it's extremely painful because they like cut out and then they like sew in. Oh my this piece gosh. Of bowel. Oh, that sounds in awful. your hoo ha. In the hoo ha. So think about it. You're sitting, you're like, uh, just like the central part of your body, like you sit, you stand, you walk, like it's there and you have like this major surgery and then you still have to use dilators. And then because bowel is it, it, it like apparently is not regenerative, but kind of like it grows together really easily and your body can reject it still. So that's not like the, even though, I mean, honestly, a lot of people like kind of look at surgery as the quick fix that like you'll get through this recovery right. and it'll be fine, but clear as day, right. this wasn't the best long-term option for you. No, absolutely not. And like, honestly, if the dilators hadn't worked, I could have gone back and had surgery. Like, So was it, did your parents choose for you? Did you, did they say it's your decision or did you guys kind of come to that together? Or I think it was more of like, I was overwhelmed by the decision anyways. And my mom, my mom and dad, clearly my dad was probably slightly uncomfortable I'm sure. with the situation. <laughs> and so he kind of took a back seat, even though he was like at all of my doctor's appointments, almost all of my doctor's appointments, like, and very supportive and whatever. 
needed to be done. But my mom had just said, like, I just think this is the best idea. And I was like, not about to disagree because I was clueless. Oh, sure, sure. Well, yeah, any advice that you can get from, especially your mom, like you said, like your dad's going to be uber uncomfortable. It's not like he's ever had to deal with a vagina (laughs) ever, period. And so- Of course, you're going to listen to your mom. But so, okay, so you get these dilators then. What exactly is a dilator? It starts off the size of a pencil because at this point, my vaginal opening is seriously a pin size hole. Like there's plenty of space on the inside, but the opening in itself was a pin size hole. And so I like started off with a dilator like the size of a of a pencil and then worked my way up to, you know, a regular size vagina. And it took probably a year. So every night for like 30 minutes, I had to put this thing in place. Yes. So 16 years old, 15, 16 years old, like doing this, dealing with this. What was your like thought, like then, like, I mean, were you horrified? Were you horrified? And I remember Dr. Mir saying like, be careful who you tell. Just remember that this is like a big deal and you don't want to have to talk about it with somebody you don't want to have to. I don't know. Teenagers can be cool. They absolutely can be. I confided in my best friend and she was just so supportive, still is. So I think that was important is to have my family and then one friend to be able to So was it painful to do it then? Yes. Oh. Yeah. It was painful at first Mm -hmm. and now it's, and then it became just uncomfortable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you, you don't get a period, right? So not externally. So I obviously drop, since I do have two ovaries, Mm -hmm. I drop eggs, but I do not shed a uterine lining. So I do have a lot of symptoms of uh, a menstrual cycle, but I don't have the external dropping. So you still get like equally all the bad parts though, like all the emotional. That is 100% true. (laughs) I can always tell. And I'm always like, (laughs) Like nothing good came from this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's always been my art joke. So I was born you know, like one kid, one kidney, no vagina. I have herbs palsy. I'm like, mom, what were you doing to me? That was like always our joke. Like you took my part. <laughs> this is now we're talking 16, 17 years ago, right? But like you have gotten to a point now, like the fact that you can, that you've even joked about it with your mom, like you have such a, a, a lighthearted attitude about things where it's just like, whatever, this is it, this, it's going to be fine. And you just got to do what you got to do. hundred percent. And I, I, there was no other way around it. Right. Like it, it can have a vagina or no vagina, make your choice. Right. <laughs> and so I commend you so much for even going through that process and being able to confide in one person and your family. I would have been mortified to even have this discussion with my mother or my sisters. Like the mere fact that you could do that with your family and a friend is, it's incredible that you had like the confidence to be able to be like, well, this is what I'm dealing with and it'll be okay, you know? Right. Absolutely. And it probably leads to why my mom, like Mary Margaret is my best friend, but my mom and my sister are truly like, you know, my end all be all people. And so it's probably what this kind of comes down to is this like when you have like, I'll call it a big secret, then you only have so many people to talk to. After a year, you finally get to the point where you now have this uh, vagina, a typical vagina size hole. Right. So at that point, like, what does that look like going forward? Like, do you have to maintain that? 
Yeah, kind of. And so the doctor is, ah, I love this lady. It's like looking back with such fond. <laughs> she said, she's like, you know, you have to maintain it. And like ways to maintain it are you can keep using dilators when you're not sexually active or you need to have consistent sex. That was but it. you have to keep up then essentially at the time with dilators. And then now you're talking like you're 17, 18 years old, like getting ready to go to college, right? Yeah, I had a, and I, at that point I had like a pretty consistent boyfriend. His name was Eric. He was a really nice guy. And of course I had to like tell him this business and he was great about it. Like truly. Was that a hard conversation to have? I mean, like you're a teenager having this with your boyfriend. Right. And so for him, it was like not that hard of a conversation and we really didn't get into it a whole lot. Like there was no children, like real, like everything was hypothetical, right? It wasn't like him and I are going to have kids, Mm -hmm. like him and I are going to be together forever. It was just a high school boyfriend. And we both, I think we both knew it. Of course we thought we were just deeply in love, but no. That's great that the first time that you had to have that conversation with a significant other, it went well to where obviously, you know, you went to, so you went to college then. Did you go, when you went to college, were you still dating Eric or did that? No. Eric. (laughs) (laughs) So funny because of Eric, I actually met John and he was dating, uh, one of Eric's family friends and I, and so we kind of like met and we thought the other one was pretty cute. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, and it was pretty instant connection with John. He's pretty adorable and he was even very adorable back then. And so. Um, How old were you at the time? 18, 18 years old. And it was kind of an interesting thing because we went on like our first official date and I'll never forget it. We're sitting in the back of his truck, we're eating ice cream. And I'm like, I can't have kids. I just like blurted it out. Cause there was like always with John, there was just always this like instant kismet connection. And so I was just like, I can't like, he's gotta know. And so, yeah. And he, he said from the beginning, like, you know, like, I'm not sure if I want kids or not. And I was like, well, I want kids. And he's like, well, I'll like, I'll get there. And I'm like, okay. So it was not a problem. Again, I think I lucked out. And right from the beginning. Yeah. yeah, And right to to come out and even just blurt that out. Like, so that must have just been in that moment sitting on your chest so heavy. It was. It just like, I couldn't stop myself. Like, it was like, I have to tell this person that like, you know, this is what you're getting into. Like, Good on you for being so forthcoming because how often do people get into relationships that turn into marriages that years down the road, they're like, hey, just so that you know, I never wanted kids. And the other one is like, what? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was, I mean, John just is like, unsure. And you know what, even at this point, like, I thought like I was going to be a teacher, like I was working at preschools, I was, you know, like, this is kids were my life. And so I thought I knew I wanted kids. But like, I had no idea what this little adventure was going to look like. Right. (laughs) Then so you dated John all throughout college. We did. And you got married after college. Yeah, so we dated. Yeah, we got engaged the summer after like the fall after so my first year of teaching, the fall, that okay. fall, and then we got married the next year. So then now you guys, um, you've been through college, you're teaching, get engaged, get married. So then when do you guys start talking about, hey, I think we might want to have kids, and what does that conversation kind of look like? 
So on like our, I was like five days to our first year anniversary, I went through a first egg retrieval. And at this point, so since I can't carry kids, the egg, egg retrieval is like this unknown thing, right? It's just like, I'm retrieving your eggs. We're going to make embryos and we're going to freeze them and see where we go from here. And so, yeah. And you know what? Our, my first egg retrieval was not bad. And so they got 14 and they were like, this is awesome. And then each day they call and they're like, oh, now you're down to seven. And now you're down to five. And then you were down to three. And what an emotional roller coaster yeah. that is. You're, you already feel like it's just your fault. And then you get this number, you're like three tries. That's all I get. And we were paying everything out of pocket. So now you have these three eggs. Right. Embryos. embryos. Three just embryos. kidding. Three embryos. I had 14 eggs and then they all disappeared. Right. <laughs> I am not a gynecologist. <laughs> uh, um, so what happens from there then? Okay. So at this point, my sister had volunteered to try to have a baby for us. And she has had two children. She is just like fertile myrtle, like had a consistent cycle. Like she is definitely like a prime candidate. So we go through our first round. And so she is implanted. Thing looks awesome and she miscarries like two days later oh, my oh no terrifying sad and so it's eight weeks at this point and we're just heartbroken right, right. john and i are crushed cecily's crushed everybody's just miserable and we give it a little time and then we start again again she's implanted and her numbers come back and they say pregnant kind of so three days later you go back again numbers have lowered so the chemical pregnancy. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, crushed, right? Of like course, sad. yeah. And then we try again. And this is now Christmas time. I'm at Target with my mom and I get the, the doctor calls and says, okay, we're kind of in the same situation again. The numbers are higher. We're not giving up hope. So we have to have a couple more days. So a couple more days and her numbers are still holding kind of stable. And then a couple more days and they said chemical pregnancy. And we're oh. like, like, what are we going to do? And and it's just like heartbreaking for her. It's heartbreaking for us. It just becomes just, just like sadness. And in, in between here, my sister and I had gotten to the point where like, we just couldn't talk to each other anymore because it had, was really hard on both of us because uh. like, she felt like I wasn't caring about her and her family. And I felt like she wasn't trying, like trying her hardest to start mm -hmm. my family, which obviously neither was true. Right. But your wow. emotions are right. so high that like, and you're so invested in this working out. She's so invested in it working out for you. Like, and to give somebody yeah. the gift, like that is right. the fact that she was even willing to do it, like hands down. I cannot, mm -hmm. people that can do that for other people are saints, living right. saints, right? <laughs> I would be a terrible pregnant person and I can't imagine then doing it for somebody else. Our relationship was very damaged at this point and it was really hard. And we went into our fertility doctor said, I want to meet with you guys in person. And we're like, okay. And she goes, you have to give it up. Like it's not going to work with your sister. It might be emotional. It might be physical. Whatever it is, you have to give it up. And it was hard. It was really hard. One, we had invested so much money. And two, we were out of embryos. Right. So now you're right. starting yeah. back to square one. Yes, we are. I go back in for another egg retrieval. And oh my gosh, it was terrifying. I got nine. So 14 the first time, right. three. So now I have nine. Oh. And I'm like, there's not going to be any left. Yeah. Right. There's nothing. There's no embryos left. But no, two were 
three, I think three again, three fertilized. And so we're like, okay, good. We started contacting adoption agencies. Just like, okay, maybe this wasn't for us. And so, oh my gosh, every lunch break, I'd call a different agency and like get their information and like start applications and things like that. And I'd fill out the applications and I had been talking with their like, their like liaison, their person that talks about it. And, And so the woman said, like, tell me your story. And they told her our story. And she was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to say this, you need to pick surrogacy or adoption. And that's it. She was like, we won't, you know, like there are too many parents out here looking for babies because your heart needs to be all in one or the other. And so at that point, John and I were not willing to give up surrogacy. And so we chose to go with an agency. And so then we start interviewing surrogacy agencies. And how old are you? Like Lauren, how old are you at this point? 26 probably to to make these big decisions in your life but let alone like on your lunch break from teaching other children like calling every person you can possibly call I can't even imagine like it's all encompassing because you like if anybody knows you and if anybody knows John you guys are just like family people you know like and if that's like your that your goal like of course that's like encompassing your entire life Right. And clearly my husband had decided he wanted children. <laughs> right. Well, he did tell you he'd get there. <laughs> it took a few years, but we got there. And, and I think at this point too, like even, I would say like John and I's relationship was probably really waning because I was just, I was sad. I was so sad. I'm sure. Yeah. And so we're like three miscarriages in and I'm 26, 27. My sister has two kids. She's now pregnant with her third. Oh. My best friend is, she might've been pregnant with her third. And I am just sad all the time, all the time. And it was really hard. Johnny always did his best to like try to make me happy and like keep my mind off of things. We did a lot of really fun things. We traveled a ton. We went and did everything we could have ever done to keep our minds off of it but it was hard. We all have friends that have struggled to get pregnant. Right. And so everybody kind of goes through that cycle of like, why, why did they get it? And I don't, I mean, I think that's, that's just a natural thought that people have. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with feeling that way. Like you're allowed to feel devastated. You're allowed to feel cheated. Right. Right. And I think feeling feelings is sometimes hard and then talking about them. And it's also, it was, a struggle with me to like not feel like it was my fault because that's I mean like my husband would not have been in this position if he would have married somebody else but then at the same time like even though your husband's in the, there with you in the trenches with you like I felt he didn't understand and so that was a really difficult part in a relationship is just like coming to, to like a meeting of the minds or even just like being able to comfort one another and not just me being comforted because of course he was hurting too. But I, at this point, my, my mind wasn't letting me feel for him. And that's not, wasn't fair either. That would, that was a real lesson for both of us because now here we are like three miscarriages in interviewing agencies, deciding not to do put off adoption, at least for now. And then we did, we found an agency that we just adored, like these three middle-aged ladies who just were like, just moms, like they just wanted to help and we needed them. (laughs) We needed their help so bad. 
And then we were had to start the process. And so that process was like a lot of psychological testing. They had to get all of your results. And then you had to like submit pictures and stories and everything. In the so case. unbelievable. So you guys had to go through testing. It wasn't the people that person yeah. that's going to be carrying your baby. So it was, yeah, it's a process. And they just really made sure it was, it was like, like it was a process. Like this wasn't some like, oh, here, here's some people. So after you go through all the testing and they go through all the testing, do they have somebody in mind for you or do you still pick the person? They did. They very much had somebody in mind for us. So they like, from the beginning they said i think we have a good match for you like after we like get all of our like we're approved and she was from waukesha and her and her husband had three kids like very yeah three very young kids but i had i'd said like i want somebody like pretty active we wanted somebody that either was married or in a like a serious relationship didn't matter if they're gay or not like we just wanted like a, a good family Surrounding. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. So then do you guys get together and meet each other first to make sure you mesh well or whatever? Yeah, super awkward. But yeah, so they like, okay, come meet on this day. Well, they were late. Not not the surrogate, but like the, the surrogacy <gasps> company was late. So we ended up meeting in the parking lot. Oh. It was really funny, actually. And, um, and so we like immediately hit it off and her husband was so sweet and she was so sweet. Like they were just like very spunky and fun people. So what made her want to do this for somebody that she didn't even know? They yeah, had really easy pregnancies and then they sent their kids to private school and they wanted to like be able to afford that and go on vacation. Yeah. Like they had like a money goal in, in mind too. And I loved their honesty with that. Well, yeah, to be upfront about that versus right. like coming off, like I'm this person, I'm this way. And then secretly just be like, okay, but I really need to do it for this. Like then it just rubs you the wrong way. Right. Like, and that was like a requirement of the agency is that you be on it. Like you need to tell people the people what your plan is to do with the money when they were. And I liked their reason, like, or like made me feel good that like, I, she's going to help me have a baby. and I'm going to help send her kids to school. And then is there like, by any means you don't have to get into exact numbers, but is there like a flat cost that like is just associated with it or at all? It's just like kind of how it goes. Agency, agency fee first. And then you pay her, you do pay her like an, an initial fee. So you like, have all these things like you pay for testing, you pay for their gas mileage, you pay for like missed work. Uh, as soon as there is a confirmed heartbeat, you pay a flat fee. And then after that, it's like close and then a monthly fee and then an end fee. And yeah, okay, well, I guess back it up a little bit because so we implanted two. So Lee was actually a twin and that twin did not develop. And, um, and so at this point, like, we're just so excited just to even have one that it wasn't really that big of a deal or didn't feel, you know, didn't feel like this huge loss. Thank goodness. Like, and she was so ecstatic. She had started doing home pregnancies like five days in and they recommend you don't do that because you can get like your HEG can be high enough to get like a false, not a false negative, but to register a chemical pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so he told us, and I was like, I can't hear about this. Like, I can't hear about this until, you know, whatever. Like, and even at eight weeks, I don't trust it. Like, I will not be excited until 12 sure. weeks. 
And so 10 weeks rolls around, 11 weeks rolls around, and John and I are still just on the edge of our chair. And then 12 weeks rolls around, and we finally accept it. Aww. And we finally tell our families. So the whole time she's pregnant, are you like going up there all the time? Yes. So they're only, they were like an hour 45 away, which was awesome. So I got to go to whatever doctor's appointments I wanted. She and I would go to lunch. We would like hang out. Like I got to kind of feel like I was a part of the pregnancy, which was really nice. John and I literally made the most out of the nine, well, eight months because he was so early, but we literally made the most out of eight months because we just knew like, this is it. Right. Did you find out that you were having a boy? No, we had no idea. Nope. We chose, like, we could have sexed the embryos and we didn't. We just like had decided like we'd already messed enough with nature that we would like to just keep yeah. this little secret. So the moment comes when Lee is going to be born. Was this something that you guys talked about pre, like before this about being in the room or, you know? Yeah. So we just like in your contract or like in your conversations, you have to talk, you know, pretty briefly. It's not like a huge conversation about whether she would feel comfortable with us in the, in the delivery room and if it was a C-section. And so those are the things you have to talk about. And so she had said like me all the way. She was like, you, you can be the person that comes in in the C-section with me. And then you both can be in the delivery room. And we were like, awesome. And I think at the same time, we totally would have understood and maybe just didn't even know any better. And so we, um, yeah. So we like sit in the room, have awkward conversations for six hours. And then it, then, so her doctor was out of town. And so the, you know, the person on call comes in and she's like, okay, who's the mom? Like, kind of a confused situation because clearly she hasn't really been briefed and we were like we're the intended parents she's a surrogate it is our it is not traditional surrogacy it's gestational surrogacy this is our genetic child that will go home with us and she was like okay then another doctor on call comes in with her because apparently she was a med student and she or doing her fellowship and she um Bree's giving birth and the doctor says it's a boy and hands the baby to Bree and she's supposed to hand it hand him to me and at this point I'm a little sad that like again she didn't I don't think the doctor really knew what was happening here and I just like ex then again ecstatic to see this little monster of a little but he was just such a little peanut by any means nothing can take away all the pain that you had to go through previous to that but that moment was like all of that pain was so worth it and, and beyond that it was just like i think a fear for all intended parents is that this baby isn't gonna feel like mine right it, it didn't yeah. hear my heartbeat it didn't hear my kids it didn't hear my my home my voice it didn't hear you know like it wasn't a part of me and so it's this fear like is this baby gonna love me and so this baby it was this like holding him like nothing else mattered and i have to say the hospital was prepared for us we had our own room it was right next to a store to breeze that was the hardest part is like knowing that that type of relationship was gonna end this this contract is over. Right. And now you don't we don't have to mutually be involved anymore. Right. By March she was wanting to try again. By wait, hold on. By March as in like three months just later. Just had baby Lee. Oh yes. wow. Three yeah. months later. She's wanting to yeah, like start the process again. Like just talking about it getting because it, it takes time getting contracts, seeing doctors, because you have to get a, medically approved. And so at six months 
we implant again and seven at seven weeks she starts bleeding and miscarriage or it's not a miscarriage at this point unfortunately fortunately unfortunately it's just a chemical pregnancy and so she didn't even make it to seven weeks and so you're basically implanted at four so she made it like two and a half weeks so now this time around even though it's with brie that obviously you had this successful pregnancy before right. is is the are these chemical pregnancies as painful as the first go around or are you kind of like almost numb to it at this point? I was numb, 100% numb. I think, and I, I could see how maybe in her shoes, like my reaction was like unloving or like, because um, mine's more like, oh, this really sucks, but like, I'm not ready to give up, right? Like, yeah. And so chemical pregnancy at seven weeks. And at this point, they stopped talking to us. What? Yeah. They sent us a bill and I sent a message back. It was hard for us. It was hard for them. And I think she couldn't handle it again. I honestly, there was no trust there. And we were not really ready to start again. But like, if it was for, if that's what Brie wanted, that's what we were going to do. Sure. So we're like, we are going to take some time. So then at what point did you decide I we were ready to try again? Um, so when Lee was about two and so, yeah. And then we went back to this, our agency who was awesome at this point, it actually formed a different agency. They'd broken off from the legal firm they were with and to create their own, which was actually a really, really positive situation for them. And we go and we meet with them and we tell them our expectations. And we wanted to put in two embryos again, because it was successful with Lee and all the ones that we didn't put two embryos in weren't successful. So we were like two and it's not that easy because there's a higher rate with surrogacy and IVF that that embryo split. They don't know why, but it's just a higher rate. And so we were like six, seven, eight months past and we're like, where is our match? So like you, you're meaning like finding somebody that's willing to accept the fact that you may have twins. Right. Correct. Which is obviously a risk for them. So somebody willing to take the risk of carrying twins. And so we go ahead and to like change our paperwork to a single embryo transfer and we're matched within two weeks. Oh, yes. With Katie. Yeah. Like embryo. So we met them end of May transfer was July 3rd. And they put it in her and they were like, see ya. <laughs> Time to go home now. And she, Katie was very nervous, but like, I don't know. She was such a trooper and she starts testing again. She's the same as Brie. Like she starts testing and starts sending us pictures. She's like, I definitely see a line. And I'm like, okay, not going to get excited. Like, but then I didn't see her again until like November. October. So tell us about Eve being born. We had my parents take Lee and then we went up there the night before and we like hit up all the supper clubs and had, <laughs> and then we went to sushi and like, and then we went to all the supper clubs again and then stayed in a really nice hotel. And we, yeah, came bright early in the morning and Eve was born by noon, about noon, 12, 19. So, and it, and then, so it was so cute. The doctor had said he was so 
he had told Katie, didn't Katie didn't tell me that he was so worried about this because he had he had done a surrogacy case before us and it had not gone well. Like intended parents took oh, no. the baby and didn't let the surrogate see the baby. And it was like and that was the end of the relationship, which honestly probably means something went sour in between. Yes, because like how do you get right. to that point of all of a sudden after that, like after giving birth, like to be like, bye. Right. This little baby is born at 1219. And I'm like, at this point, I, my, I tears are just like pouring out of my eyes. Cause I thought for sure, again, the opposite sex of was that it was a boy. It was like, I'm just meant to have two boys. And so then she, we only had to stay one night or 24 hours to be released because it was a girl, no circumcision. Katie was so amazing and she continues to be so amazing. People that end up doing this for other people, like they are special human special. beings period. You know, like they, they to give somebody this gift. I don't know that there is a gift that's equivalent to it other than like donating an organ to somebody. Right. I mean, like I would definitely compare it to that. <laughs> same, same difference. You're either giving life or you're saving a right. life, you know, and, and giving up nine months of your life to have this relationship afterwards where even, even with Brie, like to, to even share pictures, to, to let somebody, let your surrogate watch the child they carried for you. That's an amazing right. gift that you give back to somebody, you know, that it, that you show how much it meant to you, like, and how much they will always be a part of your life. Right. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And that's like, so Katie, we were supposed to get together on Eve's birthday, but that's when quarantine hit. So we didn't feel comfortable, you know, of course, because we were supposed to go stay in a hotel in Madison to meet halfway between us. And we just didn't feel comfortable with it. And I, we're just like, it's sad. Like, it's sad for both of us not to have been able to see each other and for her to like get to celebrate that little baby that she, you know, gave to yeah. us. It's so amazing. Yeah. Your journey has been so beautiful to watch as this 15, 16 year old girl who was dealing right. with, you know, body issues and then recognizing that this was also going to lead into lifelong issues, regardless of how difficult and how painful it was, you and Johnny figured it out together and you have these two amazing children. So we have just some like uh, some bigger questions that we want to ask you. Okay, so the first question that we have is, what advice would you give a young woman that gets diagnosed with your condition? Well, like somebody with my condition, I mean, like my advice definitely would be like, it's okay. Like first thing is first, like to love your body for what it is, because like there's nothing you could have done. There's nothing you did wrong. And I think that that was something that like it took me a long time to understand is that I didn't do anything wrong, but like just have to love yourself through it all. Uh, infertility like comes with a lot of sadness for all of us. Like anybody who experiences miscarriage, anybody who can't get pregnant, feeling the feelings like Sometimes it's really easy to just put on a really happy face and just move on or like plug through it. If you don't feel those feelings, it's going to come out in a different way, whether it's anger towards your husband, whether it's anger towards other people, whether it's depression, but like just feeling what you need to feel because it is 100% important. So now you're at the end of this 
kind of journey here, right? You've got these two amazing babies and things are great. And um, you've kind of come full circle with everything. Looking back, would you do anything differently? I don't think I would have done anything differently. I think we were where we were in life at the time we did them. But like, if I could just tell anybody, like, think very carefully about using somebody you love because it just changes the dynamic of it. And again, I don't think I would have changed it. And like, I don't think my sister would have changed it, but it's definitely a difficult road when things don't go well. Okay. So what have you learned about yourself going through this entire process? Oh man, I have learned that I am not a cold hearted lady. Like I thought it was like, I definitely was not somebody to like cry or like be emotional about things, but like, Oh my gosh, have trying to have kids and having kids has made me actually have a heart and like have emotions. And then know, knowing that you only want things in your life that fulfill you. Um, what would you say has been the hardest part of your whole journey? I think the hardest part is definitely like, like looking at my husband and like trying to grieve together, but in separate ways. Like my husband is my best friend. He's my biggest supporter, but like I couldn't help him and he couldn't help me. So like this helpless feeling of each other, but like knowing there was always so much love obviously got us through it. So just like always knowing he's there was so important. As when you're dealing with something like this, where you're taking on the guilt and the brunt of it, but there's still grief on the other side of right. that. It's, it's hard to see through and how to, how to best be you and best be a, a, a great spouse to the other person. Yeah, definitely the hardest part. <laughs> okay. So were you always open to telling your story? I remember like in high school, I know that it was difficult to talk about that, but once you hit a certain age, did you start telling more people or what what was that moment when you finally were like okay I can tell someone (laughs) you know what like it's not easier to tell people now than it was then and I don't really love talking about it because it's just like brings back sad memories and like the past and like it's I know that people can learn from my story and see that I'm on the other side but like I have to tell you when people are in the thick of infertility and IVF like nobody's story is going to make them feel better. Like it's just impossible. It's an impossible feeling. If like IVF and infertility, a lot of times just feels impossible. Um, But I'm glad you guys asked me to do this because I did feel like this was, even though we're going to put this out to the world, like I does feel comfortable telling you guys about it. And if somebody can learn something from my story or feel like they can do it too, then I guess it's worth it for sure. So what do you hope the takeaway is from your story? Um, For friends of friends with infertility issues, just like remembering it's okay to ask, but like most people will talk about it when they're ready or share what they feel that they feel can, what they can, because like everybody's situation is different. And the other takeaway that I feel like I could hope that people get from this is that like, it's okay. You're going to make it to the other side one way or the other. And that other side may not look like what you originally thought it was going to, or in the time frame you thought it was going to, but you will make it. To the and other that's side. really the most important thing is just knowing that you will make it to the other side. 
Yeah. We are so beyond honored and grateful that you even were willing to share this story with us. And hopefully that someone somewhere listens to this and benefits from it in some way. Um, Obviously, it was not easy to share. And you, sister, like are beyond amazing and beyond incredible for sharing such a vulnerable story. Like this is this is real world, real life stuff. And it's not just about a situation. It's about you physically and you and and what you've had to go through through your marriage. And so we cannot thank you thank you enough for actually coming on here and being so honest. But before you go, we have some fun pop questions. So I'll go with the first one. Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake? Oh, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Uh, Toilet paper over or under? Uh, I like it under. Really? All right. Yeah. Everybody else in the house likes it over. What is the most ridiculous fact that you might know? My one fact that kind of goes along with this is one in 4,500 people have MRKH. What's your stance on pineapple on pizza? Yeah. Yes. Disgusting. Ew. It's gross. So you're arrested, Lauren Biddle. What do your friends and family assume it was for? Oh, disorderly conduct. (laughs) (laughs) That's easy. That's amazing. Didn't even have to think about it. Oh, amazing. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on here, for sharing your story. You are so amazing. Um, I'm sure it was not easy to come on here and tell all about your life and share such intimate details. But we really appreciate it. And thank you for being unapologetically you. You're so welcome, ladies. We're so happy you joined us. And we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please subscribe, rate, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean so that we can continue to inspire you.